Hi friends, and welcome to the Hippocratic Hope Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Farrell, a tenacious and creative licensed clinical social worker with a desire to help medical and mental health providers sustain their passion for healthcare. This podcast focuses on offering education and support to anyone whose day-to-day is centered around caring for others. Join me and my friends as we offer helpful information on self-care so you can continue to successfully carry the burden of caring for others. Very special topic as well as a very special guest. I am very excited to talk about a probably non-conventional, like it's not something we talk about um, topic this week, which is addictions, specifically addiction in the medical and the mental health field from the provider standpoint. I think it would be ignorant to say that mental health providers and medical providers don't have substance use concerns or disease. And I have a very special guest, Dr. Balasanova, who is a colleague of mine and has taught me so much about what is available to individuals in communities around the United States and possibly even around the world. And she's here to share her wisdom with us today. And so thank you, Dr. Balasanova, for being here. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here and to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is substance use. Um, And it's one of my favorite subjects because I am an addiction psychiatrist. So um, what I have devoted my professional career to is treating psychiatric disorders, which of course include substance use disorders. And so I as all psychiatrists went to medical school, um, did residency training, And then subsequently, I was board certified in psychiatry and also um, received certification in addiction medicine. Um, So I am now an addiction psychiatrist and I do a lot of teaching um, here locally to medical students, residents, other faculty and staff members. I've developed and directed multiple service lines for addiction psychiatry here at our hospital. And really, it's just a a patient population that is just so near and dear to my heart, because it's a disease that I think people don't recognize actually gets better, and is highly, highly treatable. And I think some of the stigma we have in our communities about what a substance use disorder is and what addiction is, Um, is just all wrong, frankly, because for those of us that work with these patients, we see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we see that patients get better and that there's actually quite a bit of hope. So, you know, much like the Hippocratic Hope, I am here also to help promote hope for this patient population. Awesome. So I'm assuming addiction, like what does an addiction psychiatrist do on a day-to-day? Like if you kind of gave us like an, like an, like an example, because you said, you know, you, you are aware of those uh, mental health conditions and then including in, I think oftentimes think that people think they're separate, but including in substance use in that mental health perspective. Right. Well, and so that's a great question. You know, our diagnostic Bible, so to speak, it's called the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders put out by the American Psychiatric Association. It's on its fifth iteration. You know, it's been out for like a hundred years or so. (laughs) And that is where all of our diagnoses that in the world of psychiatry live. And so there's an entire chapter devoted to substance related and addictive disorders. So that's substance use disorders and behavioral addictions. And, you know, many psychiatrists, unfortunately, 
just don't receive a very good education and training on how to identify and appropriately manage these disorders. Mm -hmm. So on the day-to-day, as an addiction psychiatrist, I do everything a general psychiatrist does. And on top of that, I also diagnose and treat substance use disorders, right alongside schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, you know, whatever else might be going on with the patient. Because, you know, substance use disorders, much like all mental disorders, don't happen in a vacuum. And they're biopsychosocially based, just like all of our other disorders. And so many times patients do have more than one disorder, you know, Mm -hmm. of which one is a substance use disorder. And so day to day, I see patients inside the hospital that are medically and surgically hospitalized and have substance use concerns. I see patients in the outpatient setting. I supervise residents as they see patients in the outpatient setting, as well as in the inpatient setting. And I do quite a bit of education and um, educational projects, both uh, within our institution and then just for our state as a whole. That's amazing. I think that that's really, really helpful and awesome. Um, are there any normalizing statistics that you might have of individuals who are like doctors and nurses, um, who are therapists of how prevalent substance use is even among, uh, the helpers? Yes. Well, you know, one of my favorite phrases is that addiction doesn't discriminate, right? Mm -hmm. And so you could be a billionaire and come from a well-to-do family And you can develop a substance use disorder, just like somebody who has maybe had a really rough and tough upbringing and had hardships in their life. Um, You know, it really doesn't discriminate. One in seven Americans will develop a substance use disorder at some point in their lifetime. One Mm -hmm. in seven. That's a very big number. And that is global. So it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, if you're a social worker, if you're a therapist, if you're a carpenter, if you're a bus driver, it really doesn't matter. Those are the statistics. And we know that's true because of the patients that we see, you know, and, and they come from all walks of life. So, I mean, ultimately, though, since this is a global perspective, then it's likely that someone listening today has this, um, has this, I mean, I would call it a diagnosis, right? Like a disease. It is a diagnosis, and, absolutely. Yeah. And a disease that maybe I would, I know that talking to some people, they feel very ashamed because they are in a helping profession and they feel somehow it shouldn't affect them or they should have known better. And I, I don't necessarily think that that's just how the actual condition works. I think it just sometimes you find yourself in a place you didn't think it, it kind of went too far. Um, so for you, are there any um, signs or symptoms of, you know, where misuse starts or um, where people may have found themselves and maybe aren't even fully aware of how far they've gone? Do you have any input on that? If not, we can move on to next question. (laughs) Yeah, no, you know, I just, I really think it's such a deeply personal thing. We have diagnostic Mm -hmm. criteria, of course, for all disorders and diseases in the mental health realm, but you know, how it affects you as a person, as an Mm -hmm. individual is going to vary dramatically from person to person. And so what I would say is I think deep down, You know, if something is kind of off kilter or something is just not right, I do think that an individual likely has some recognition of that, that perhaps Mm -hmm. things are going down a negative path. 
but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, that time might be not the right time to address it because of other things and competing priorities. And so, you know, there's not one magic bullet that it's like when this happens, you know, you're addicted, right? That's not mm-hmm. nothing like that. Um, you know, if there were, maybe we'd have a magic wand and could fix things a lot easier. But uh, because it is just so highly individual, everybody's brain is different. Um, and it's just so highly individual that more often than not, there's just the sneaking suspicion within somebody that, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe this Mm -hmm. isn't a good idea. You know, and many times that gets pushed back to the back of their brain because that's not something they want to be thinking about. Um, But I would just urge folks to, when you get that little gut feeling to listen to it, and if there's something telling you that, hey, something's not right here, just talk to someone, talk to a family member, talk to your therapist if you have one, you know, talk to whoever you might feel comfortable sharing that information, because you may not fully understand what it means, but maybe talking to a professional could help figure that out. I, I actually agree with that. I um I truly believe in the just because you may have that little lingering fear. I think some people think that like we're automatically going to send them to like six weeks of you know detox or some sort of like inpatient program when substance use treatment is actually expanded from even when I you know even fifteen years ago it's it's not so much where everything has to be done in an isolated room that's you know or in a in a group setting where you're all alone and you're across the country like there are other options available for people um today that where they can even continue to still work from what I understand correct oh absolutely absolutely and you know that is just it's so disappointing to me that our social narrative is that substance use treatment is just this horrible thing where you get locked away at some facility mm-hmm. on the outskirts of town for months at a time without seeing your family, without being able to work and earn a living. You know, all of these horrible things that historically was true, you know, and historically that was the only option because we treated this disease as though it was a moral failing. And so we would do this to people as punishment, you know, Mm -hmm. and and kind of like get your act together. We're going to do this to you until you, you know, set yourself straight. And what history taught us is that that just doesn't work. Uh, It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of individuals' livelihoods. And people just don't want to do it because it's not helpful. And so fortunately, you know, the world has in many ways comes to its senses and develop other treatment options, which of course residential, which is what I just described, it still exists and we still have Mm -hmm. it in our community, but there's also a variety of other options available, such as simply having a therapist you talk to once a week, once every two weeks, or seeing your regular doctor, your primary care doctor that you've had a relationship with for your entire life. um, And they might prescribe some medication for you that's gonna help you reduce how much you're drinking, for example. Um, you know, that's another option. It's just, there's just so many lower key options now that don't have to be this kind of scary, overbearing, punitive thing. Yes. And that, that is actually something that I learned from you because I came from a traditional um, background of while we worked on this, um, this idea of like starting where someone's ready to start, I wasn't given as much education on that. There are actually medications from everything from like alcohol use to 
even something that I would, I would say maybe appears to be more quote severe, like heroin and, um, you know, opiate and benzos, there are medications, there's things we can do to kind of help you manage those conditions without again, making you go to rehab. And there are things even your primary care doctor can do to help you. Um, and so that is definitely a message I want to share because that's something I didn't even know I could recommend my patient to. You actually were the one that taught me about a medication that helps with addiction. Um, cravings. I didn't even know that medicine existed. I'm not the only I, one, but I, I had no idea. To, I talked to patients all the time and it's just shocking to me how many of them are, have never been told about medications, have never heard of them. They look at me like I have three heads when I mention this, because they mm -hmm. literally, it's like, it's not even in their wildest dreams that this is an option. Um, right. And it's been around for decades. That is so crazy to me. And this is, I mean, and this is not even the traditional, and I'll even say one of the traditionals that I knew about was the abuse where you take it and then you would like get sick if you took it. they are not those types of medicines anymore. There's medicines that are just even more, um, to me, logically realistic to take. They're not medicines that just, you know, you, you take and then you get sick. That never made sense to me. It does for some people, but it doesn't for me. Right. And so that's what I'm really excited about where our pharmacology is going, that to treat, um, you know, that, that those cravings and those what's going on inside your body chemically, we have stuff that can help you make progress and manage that while continuing to meet those other priorities you may have in your life. Absolutely. Um, so what are your thoughts on like self-guided interventions for reduction of substance use? Like, do you have any like just information? I know we can't really give like medical advice, but what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like if someone wants to try to, um, reduce their use of some substance, do you feel like they need to reach out or do you feel like it is okay to also try to do this on their own? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really interesting concept. And I think, again, it's going to vary depending on the patient, like much like everything in mental health and just medicine does in general, you mm -hmm. know, depending on the substance that you use, for example, alcohol withdrawal can be life-threatening. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if somebody is trying to reduce uh, on their own without medical supervision, depending on their body chemistry, their biological predisposition, the amount of alcohol they may be using, they could be putting themselves in a very dangerous position by doing mm -hmm. that on their own without medical supervision. You know, that being said, there's other substances where withdrawal from them while very uncomfortable is not life threatening. Um, so for example, methamphetamines or cocaine. And so if somebody were, you know, slowly trying to reduce the amount that they used, they may be grumpy, uh, <laughs> but they likely, you know, would not be in a state where their life was in danger. And so mm -hmm. it really is just going to depend on the patient, the substance that's being used, the frequency of use, and their biological predisposition towards, um, you know, hazardous outcomes. I love that. I just love that. I love that the the kind of the underlying message too that I'm hoping everyone's picking up on is it's a kind of a self um, tailored plan for you. It's mm -hmm. not so much that it's 100% sobriety, end of discussion, get out of my face until you can achieve that. It's where are you at? What works for you? And uh, let's kind of build a plan that's safe for you to one, stop using as well as what is going to work for you. Because I think that that's what keeps that light at the end of the tunnel 
achievable rather than telling someone to go a certain way. It's like, let's, let's go this way and let's do it together. Cause I love the hope you had at the end is that people can get better. People do get better and they can go into recovery for this. And I think that's a really important place to, um, I think be with people. Oh, absolutely. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, one of our biggest philosophies is harm reduction um, and reducing the harm related to using a substance, right? And reducing mm-hmm. harm does not necessarily mean they reduce use of the substance, right? Mm-hmm. It means we're reducing the harm that comes right. from that. And, and I think there's a really big difference um, because harm reduction certainly could entail reducing use of the substance and abstinence from the substance, but it doesn't have to. And I can think of many examples where somebody has chosen to engage in harm reduction because they don't want to get bloodborne diseases from sharing needles and mm-hmm. they don't want to, you know, jeopardize their health further um, in perhaps passing on HIV they may have to somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. But they're not in a place where they're interested in stopping use of substances. And to me, that is perfectly okay because, like I said, we meet patients where they're at. Yep. Um, you know, I can think of another example where a patient that was blacking out uh, from intoxication nearly every night um, with alcohol, and his spouse was just very upset with him. And, you know, the spouse also drank, they drank together, but the spouse wouldn't drink to the degree that he did. And so, um, you know, they were having a lot of marital discord because of it. And the patient wanted to continue and enjoying the socializing with a spouse through alcohol, but didn't want to quite get to that level where mm-hmm. you know he blacks out and he upsets his spouse. And so we work together in figuring out, well, how many drinks do you think puts you over the edge? You know, is it after five? Is it after 10? And he seemed to know that when he gets into that four or five category, things just go downhill, you know, really quickly. And so we made a goal to see how we can stick under four, stick to under four and see if we can do that and see how he might still be able to obtain the pleasurable aspects of alcohol and socializing um, without going down that negative path. That's what I love. Yes. That is that is definitely where I am. And for anyone who's been told different, you can find someone new because there are people who do see that as that's what their goal is and that is achievable. That is something that protects the person, that's the person that protects their spouse. That that is what I actually get really excited about because those are the type of treatment plans we should be having for people in general and we should we should have for ourselves. And so if anyone is struggling, I really hope that they know that there are providers out there who are going to meet them where they're at and you don't have to have quote sobriety. Um, in all situations to maintain um, a safe level of living with that. And so I just, it just makes me really excited. <laughs> Very good. Well, um, we're kind of getting to the, like the end. I didn't have over too many questions, but um, other than kind of reaching out to someone um, that is maybe a trusted person in the beginning, do you have anything that you would want anyone listening to either share with a significant other or maybe take into consideration if they are themselves struggling with um, some sort of substance use? Yeah, you know, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, how would you feel if you were diagnosed with high blood pressure? How would you feel if you were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, right? Or COPD, chronic obstructive um, pulmonary disease, 
would you feel the same way that you feel when you think about substance use, right? And Mm -hmm. the likelihood is no, because as a society, we have put stigma on this disease that far outweighs stigma on other diseases. And Mm -hmm. the reason for that is the history of moral judgment um, and prohibition and a variety of other sociopolitical movements in our country that have absolutely nothing to do with medicine um, and with the brain. And our research and science over the past several decades have shown us that without a doubt, um, it, undeniably, substance use disorder is a brain disorder. It is a mm-hmm. chronic medical disease exactly like diabetes, exactly like COPD, exactly like high blood pressure, for which medications exist, for which lifestyle modification also exists, for which a multi-method treatment plan is usually optimal. Um, and engaging in support network, family members, um, friends, you know, recovery supports is all beneficial. And so when we reframe our thinking towards substance use as one of a chronic medical disease that can be managed just like all of these other diseases that we manage so well in medicine, I think that lends itself to more hope. I think that lends itself to a more pragmatic type of view towards this disease, right? It's not the sort of thing where, oh, well, you know, I have a disease, so nothing can be done about it. Because that's Mm -hmm. not how diabetes works. That's not how high blood pressure works, right? It's not like you just have high blood pressure and there's nothing you can do about it. That's not true. There's lots of things, right? You can do. Your doctor will talk to you about those things. There's physical activity. There's reducing salt in your diet, right? There's a variety of things. There's medications. Well, it's exactly the same for substance use disorders. You know, there's um, behavioral interventions, lifestyle modification. There's many times medications that can be taken to help reduce use of a substance or eliminate it altogether. And, and so again, if I could just emphasize the point that this really is no different than anything else that we treat in medicine. And if we just try to remember that, I think it'll allow us to have more compassion. It'll allow us to have more of a valid scientific understanding of what we're doing and also as practitioners to follow the evidence base and to be providing sound medical care. I love that. It makes me so excited. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I hope everybody really um, got something out of it. I know um, that if you liked what Dr. Balasanova had to say, she does have a Twitter handle, which is Dr. Psych MD. And uh, she always would post really, really good articles. Um, and uh, she also follows really cool people. I've been kind of like hijacking your list and looking at some of the people you follow. They're very interesting, very well um, rounded and um, evidence-based providers. So if you guys want more information, definitely check out your Twitter handle. And thank you again for being on here. Uh, For everyone else, just to remind you to subscribe, like, and share. I know that we do have some international listeners. So if you'd like to contact me through the Hippocratic Hope at gmail.com with any uh, ideas for topics you're interested in, I would love to be able to include your thoughts and interests as well. So thank you, everyone. And I appreciate you for listening.